happy Tuesday and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Hitchcock Minute, a show where teams of Movies by Minutes hosts uh, examine the Alfred Hitchcock thriller, adventure, spy, whatever you want to call it, movie North by Northwest. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of the Airport Minute, the Apollo 13 Minute, and the Rocketeer Minute. And I'm Hal Bryan, also of the Rocketeer Minute and the resident airplane nerd from the Experimental Aircraft Association here in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And we're still out there uh, in the middle of nowhere, Indiana, somewhere in, uh, in western Indiana based on uh, the Route 41 mention of uh, the, little, the little sign there. Um, uh, it's, this, is, this is not, though, I, I, I'm sure that people have mentioned this before, that this is not Indiana. It doesn't look much like Indiana. Well, it kind of looks like Indiana, except for it the is, complete. It would look more like Indiana if, uh, if the road were littered with orange barrels. <laughs> yes. a, or yes. Indiana is famous for just yes, the orange they, barrel uh, highways. They uh, they move everything to the left 15 feet every summer, and then in the winter right. they move it 15 feet to the right. So, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm just thinking there's no uh, there's no mule heads those large uh, oil oil pumps that you oh, always see out in the middle of middle of nowhere. And uh, what have you said? Little, not really Indiana. Yeah, and, but it's uh, uh, it's Bakersfield, which this definitely looks like Bakersfield. That's. Uh, I think nine months of the year it looks like that. I think there's a there's a week where Bakerfield actually turns green, <laughs> mostly just brown and burr. Um, it, and we are we're out there and uh, coming up in the distance uh, while we're waiting with uh, Prairie Crossing Man and Roger yes. the uh, the 1960 uh, 1950 flexible VisiCoach bus is on the horizon pulling up closer. What a and terrific name for a vehicle. I, I know you're an airplane guy, but are you much of a bus guy, Hal? Do you like guns? Well, yeah, so I am. I was born with what a good friend of mine calls the transportation gene. Ah. But what's interesting is that um, I I have almost zero expertise. So just a sort of raw, useless enthusiasm. Uh, so when I see this bus, I mean, I immediately want to know what kind it is. And then, I, you know, you did the research and told me it was a flexible, busy coach. And I say, that's a cool name. What a cool-looking bus. Look how cool it is. It's round. It's cool. And that's kind of the extent of, of any expertise I bring, which is obviously zero. But, uh, but there's this, uh, this enthusiasm. I bet maybe know a little bit better when you start talking British double-decker buses, oh, yeah. route masters and low-deckers and things like that. But even still, um, it's, uh, it's a peculiar feeling for me because buses and trains and some other things like that are, are things that I – consider myself into but i haven't spent my life you know devouring every every shred of information like i have with airplanes but it feels strange it's like weird to look at this bus and say oh cool i love to look at that and i can i can give you a good educated guess on the era that it's from and things like that and i can point out why i like it you know the the lines and things but then you could say what is it and it's uh it's a it's a bus (laughs) it's cool looking so I, I clearly need to do uh, I need to do a lot more homework to round out my uh, my transportation knowledge. But uh, weird British and French cars I do okay. Of course, airplanes are tend to be my forte. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, indirectly a bus guy because I I love trains and trains always leads you to things like interurban lines and interurban lines always leads you to the uh, you know the demise of uh, of trolleys over. The, the nasty things GMC did to, to take over right. uh, trolley cars, and it's like, ah. But uh, the way I, I flexible the the company that were that built this particular uh, uh, coach that we're watching pull up, uh, it kind of lived in the shadow of GMC. General Motors built 
the chassis that uh, Flexible built their their bodies on. And uh, they were always kind of the second, they were the Avis to the Hertz of, uh, of GMC uh, buses. But they did have a wide range. I mean, they, they, they built things, everything from hearses to motorcycle sidecars. They basically, if you could take a, if you take a chassis and put something else on top of it, Flexible was built. A good, solid Ohio oh, wow. company that, that um, kind of like Bodies by Fisher. They, they came up with products to put over a bunch of wheels and engines. And uh, this, uh, this particular one, the Flexible Visicoach, uh, which uh, came out, it was probably one of the bigger single-body, um, what they call a monocoque. It's a, a, a single, it's a thing that fits on top of... Uh, Kind of like they had those old uh, matchbox cars. You'd have, you'd have the chassis, and then you'd, you'd slap a body on top of it. It, it, it fit kind of the same way, this, this, um, this mono uh, shell that went over the body. And uh, they always played second fiddle. I mean, earlier before our week, we had the, you know, the famous Greyhound uh, uh, PD4501 Cena Cruiser, which was a, a General Motors product, GMC product. Uh, and that was that that was that two level one, which are you know you're still seeing them around today, but they started back in 1954, and uh, they they lasted into the 70s. A big, fascinating Cena Cruiser where you, you'd climb up further in the back seat and right. uh, just kind of a it, one it, and a half decker in a way. You know, yeah, not, not a full on you know tall like British double decker, but uh, but that just that elevated viewing area and. I love that, and I love the you know so the observation cars you would see on on you know classic railroads and things, just that that sense that uh, you know you're going to enjoy this journey and you're gonna you're gonna want to look out and see yeah. the, and see the scenery and you know you don't see as much of that uh, built into vehicles of or transportation really of of many kinds anymore. Now it's you know free Wi-Fi and there's power interesting, <laughs> so you can plug in your phone. Yeah, it, it it's just it it's just such an amazing time in uh, in transportation history. The fifties were there's so much to you know so much chrome, so much uh, brushed right. aluminum, and and it, it, even even the the shabbiest cars running down little back roads in in farm country still looked had this feeling, this streamlined look, and this this sense that you were part of a bigger system. And it was a just a little touch of civilization showing up. That the you know the door. They, it, it had it had that hydraulic opener and things like that. It would just pop open, and, and there you were. And you know, guys like uh, Prairie Crossing Man could could get on and be part of civil, you know, be part of civilization and head back to Chicago. And of course, uh, being very well dressed the entire time. Yeah, As, yeah. You know, both of them just it's it's just nothing to, you know, to wander the wander the roadside in your suit and tie and your and hat, just looking yeah. and uh, it, looking sharp as could be. I have to say that outside that outsized fedora that he's got on reminds me of uh, the opening of uh, "It's a Mad, 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 Mad World" where we see uh, Jimmy Durante. I think oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure Jimmy Durante when he was playing Smiler. Uh, I think Smiler had a giant uh, fedora like he's wearing in this, and that's all I kept picturing is that he's he's going off to uh, to drive himself off a cliff later on. But, that's, uh, <laughs> but and, you know, and, and speaking, you mentioned the the cool hydraulic doors. One of the things that strikes me in this in this minute is, uh, you know, our superhero Prairie Prairie Crossing Man uh, gets on the bus and he's still talking to to uh, Cary Grant, but that door just slams right in Cary Grant's face. I mean, the Cary, Cary could have he couldn't have gotten on this bus if he'd wanted to. Yeah, it, it, which was kind of surprising about the bus driver. Did he like? Right. Oh, this this is where I pick up. Uh, Prairie Crossing Man and no one else. Yes, and no one else. It's his stop. 
You know, it's his luxury appointed bus stop, which consists of what one sort of crudely drawn sign, perhaps, (laughs) in literally the middle of nowhere. No offense, Bakersfield, (laughs) Indiana, but uh, um, (laughs) it's just why why wouldn't you assume that two guys in suits standing by the side of the road that only one, you know, why would you assume only one of them is going to get on the bus? (laughs) Yeah, it could be a reserved seat, and that was the last one. (laughs) Exactly. You know, uh, but, there'll be another next week, Mr. Thornhill. <laughs> so. Yes, well, he 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 only had to be there to deliver his one line about explaining that uh, they're dusting crops where there ain't no crops. Right. Um, and and this this would be a good place to segue over to to crop dusting itself. I'd like I'd like to talk a little bit. Yes. I am I am I am as as much of a non crop dusting aficionado <laughs> as there is possible. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping that we can talk uh, generally here about uh, crop dusting then and crop dusting now. Do you, any ideas on the, like the history, where was the first crop dusted or what, when, when did this come about as a thing? Boy, there were, there were early experiments in, uh, in aerial application that kind of paralleled uh, aerial firefighting a bit. I mean, there, was, there were early experiments, um, you know, certainly going back to uh, perhaps even as far back as the teens, but certainly into the, the 20s. Um, we didn't really, really see it uh, um, get widely, uh, widely used and widely deployed until after World War II, and that was mainly because of the, uh, just the availability of airplanes. Um, we certainly saw stuff before the war, but really after World War II, you had the Stearman biplanes coming up as surplus, um, and as we'll be talking uh, more later this week, the N3N, uh, which uh, a lot of people will mistake for a Stearman. It's a similar airplane, but it is a bit bigger and beefier, which is the airplane that we see in this scene. Airplanes like that coming up for surplus made it uh, an easy and affordable way for operators to, uh, you know, to buy and convert and, uh, um, you know, just get into the whole the whole business of crop dusting. Um, and you certainly saw non-surplus airplanes. I mean, you certainly saw... You know, Piper Cubs fitted with with spray bars. Um, eventually, we see helicopters uh, being used for it. But it was um, it was not that long after this movie, um, though, that as the surplus airplanes started to get a little bit tired, the old biplanes started getting tired, that you really started to see the purpose-built airplanes, the the Thrush and the the Pawnee and the Ag Cat and the Ag Ag Wagon and things that. Uh, you know, have some roots uh, design-wise in some of the World War II-style airplanes, but but truly purpose-built for just for the mission of uh, mission of crop dusting. For for doing for doing crop dusting, what kind of uh, certification do you need? Do you need like a uh, do, you need, do you need like an, uh, a dusting certificate or how? Where, where does this fall? No, it is basically just a. Uh, um, Legally speaking, anyway, it's it just requires a, sort of a typical commercial pilot's license or pilot certificate. We don't really have licenses in the, here in the U.S. Um, that said, though, there is a. Uh, um, in fact, I'll see if I can uh, see if we can link to it in this minute. If you remind me, we did an article in our uh, magazine where I work about a crop dusting school. If I remember right, it was mm. down in Florida. I didn't write the piece, but we uh, we published that within the last couple of years. I'll see if we can put that up there. So it is the kind of thing that. Um, uh, certainly to be hired by an established operation, they would like to see that you have taken specialized instruction, uh, you know, from a school, if that's, if that's something you had available to you, or you would sort of start as their apprentice and they would, they would train you, uh, train you on the job. So it's, um, 
not something where you should go to the FAA and, as I said, get a crop duster's license, but it is it is something that requires, you know, as you would imagine, extensive training and practice to operate at those uh, very, very precisely at such just impossibly low levels. Yeah. How, how does that, I, I was just wondering how, how this works on airspace-wise. I mean, I realize it's uncontrolled airspace, but are there, do they have to be declared as under 500 uh, foot uh, areas? I mean, how does, how does that work? Um, not necessarily. Like I said, for the most part, um, as long as they're, as long as they're not uh, uh, close to something like a class B airspace, like an O'Hare or, you know, Seattle, those kinds of places, um, if you're outside of that sort of airspace, if it is uncontrolled, then it is something that uh, um, you're just operating as you do in the, you know, 90 plus percent of the airspace in the U.S. Uh, you're just sort of operating on a sea and avoid uh, kind of principle. Um, a lot of times uh, you will hear if uh, if a crop duster is operating reasonably close to a uh, to a smaller airport that might be an uncontrolled airport, but that airport will have a common frequency that that is published, and you'll hear a crop duster announce that they'll be, you know, I'll be working a field two miles north north by northwest. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> of the uh, of the airport for the next hour. Um, but the other thing too is that they're they're flying so low. Um, other than you know, it takes when they have to sort of climb up and reposition to a new field, and once in a while. You get you know they get a little bit higher in the turns. They're flying so low that uh, when you're flying and you see that there's crop duster activity, it it, it doesn't really affect you any more than they're uh, than they would uh, seeing a bus, you know, wow. drive driving down Highway 41. If you look down and say, okay, yeah, there's an airplane down there, but it's he's just not a factor to me because I'm at you know 500 yeah, feet, a thousand feet, and you know, yeah, it, it's just a little, one so step far above. away. One step above taxiing, basically. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's right. really what uh, really what it comes down. It's cool to when you are flying is uh, flying around here in Wisconsin. It's not at all uncommon to be to look down as you're going from point A to B and spot uh, spot somebody out there, uh, you know, dusting a field either with fertilizer or, or in some cases pesticides, sometimes seeding, um, and uh, uh, it's it's neat to see when you as I said you're you're flying along, but it's you they don't even. They don't trip your attention. You notice them and you pay close attention, but they don't trigger the same part of your brain as when you see another airplane sort of close to your altitude. As I think yeah. you said it best, it's it's not much different than looking down seeing an airplane taxiing on the ground. It's like, okay, there's an airplane there. I'm aware of it, but he's, you know, two feet off the tops of the corn, so he's, you know, not not a factor for what I'm doing. Um, as a quick aside, the, uh, you know, the organization where I work, EA, we have um, – uh, B-17 bomber from World War II that we send out on tours. And um, it was a crop duster uh, for wow. a period of its life. So if you imagine something as big a as a B-17. four-engine crop duster. <laughs> right. That was more, um, they, they used it uh, fighting, uh, fighting fire ants. And the, the bigger airplanes like that, and I think this, uh, if I remember right, I saw some service in Central America for a while uh, on the fire ant problem. Those you tend to see, you know, obviously operating a little bit higher and not doing those crazy turns, but you don't tend to see those over uh, typical farmland. You'd see those in, you know, wide open jungle canopy and stuff like that. Uh, as I said, you know, spraying for, in, in, our, in the case of our airplane, spraying for fire ants. Um, and it was also configured to do, uh, to do cloud seeding, which was, you know, chemtrails before they were chemtrails. Yeah. 
<laughs> the start of it all. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Well, if they still have the equipment on board, I would love to uh, schedule a flight over my, my backyard because we have some fire ant m- mounds that come up in the springtime, and it's it's open warfare. <laughs> you know, there was a. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that because I'll have to uh, dig this out of the out of the news, or maybe somebody listening will will uh, reply with a with a comment somewhere on Facebook or something, but. It wasn't that long ago. Like in the last several months, there was a bit of a controversy when a uh, somebody at a, it was a pastor of a church in some small town hired a crop duster to uh, to douse the town with holy water. Wow. Okay. At, yeah. Definitely. If you <laughs> at a higher altitude uh, than typical crop dusting, um, and that you know I, that to me just raises nothing but questions. Hmm. <laughs> so. And I mean, no, no disrespect to anyone's no, no. Uh, anyone's religious beliefs, the but that just philosophical seems like... aspects of uh, of it, Mayor. right? Wow. Hmm. And the sort of the uh, the involuntary receipt uh, yeah. situation, yeah. Um, the question of how how clean were those tanks before we yeah. filled them with with holy water? And... Did they bless the tank? Did they put the water in that's, first? Or, right. You know, what's so, the process? That's uh, as I said, more questions than answers. But yes. uh, I do want to see the checklist, though. Into. Yes, exactly. Uh, free flight. Um, Wow. Well, uh, we are. You know, this is this is where things are going to start getting ominous. We had our, our last hope of hope of re, uh, reprieve with uh, with uh, Prairie Crossing Man jumping on the bus, but now right. Roger once again is all alone with there's nobody nobody around except a, a biplane. And you know, you wonder how this movie would have uh, maybe not the movie. How would the story of Roger Thornhill's life played out differently if if he had just shrugged and gotten on the bus? Yeah, I'm going or, back to Chicago. Yeah, exactly. You know, enough of this. I've had it uh, out here. Or, you know, if somehow that had uh, Prairie Crossing's man real name was Kaplan. But uh, yeah, the, um, movie would have, the movie would have ended early. so that <laughs> Exactly. So, so uh, yeah, I will not be pitching that screenplay. Yeah. Yeah, you know, one thing, this is, this is a tangent, but that's what we do here. Um, I just want to point out right about, uh, oh, right about halfway through this minute, the 30-second mark or so, as uh, Thornhill's watching the bus leave, and yeah. it's just if if that framing of this shot is not used, you know, in every filmmaking textbook or whatever you use these days, uh, you know, it certainly should be because it's number one. If you you look at the the rule of thirds, this this yes. screen divides up so like almost mathematically perfectly, and you've got that the bus heading off into the distance is this perfect vanishing point just to the right edge of the screen and then you've got the power lines out there that that perfectly vanish right at the right at the horizon and everything everything in this scene we're looking from behind you know Cary Grant watching the bus leave everything just so flawlessly takes your eye to that that corner of the scene and you know and away from him as you said yeah. emphasizing this desolate desolate uh, aloneness that he's uh, experiencing yeah yeah I, I do have a question. We get to the very end of this minute. Um, is there a name for the particular? I mean, we're gonna we're gonna talk biplanes for the rest of the week, <laughs> right? But but this uh, as we see the first maneuver by the uh, by the biplane here, uh, he it looks like he pulls the stick up and then starts his run. Um, is there a name for that 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 turn and rising that he's doing there? So it's. Uh, um kind of a mix of things i mean it's you know you could describe it as kind of an aggressive aggressive climbing turn but if you see as he's uh, as the airplane you know pulls up sharply and normally for a, a crop duster you would expect 
than a 180 degree turn to go back yeah. over the field in the next you know the next row and instead he's basically just making a 90 degree turn to come you know no spoilers but um hello he's going to come and <laughs> buzz Kerry uh, <laughs> grant here in a minute um the uh, uh what's kind of cool what when i look at this uh the way this is shot what i what i sort of feel kind of the seat of the pants feeling of what that maneuver feels like is it's that sharp pull up so you feel a lot of g-force you might feel one and a half one and a half g's maybe two if he was really really aggressive with it but then gets to sort of the the apex and starts the turn and as he's turning he's purposely not um holding a lot of back pressure on the stick so he's going into what is a, a right turn and then you know heading from sort of perpendicular to the camera to or parallel to the to the, to the screen and then coming right at us now um, but the, the biggest thing is that he gets to the top and then he's releasing pressure on the stick moving it to the right and the airplane is just doing this really nice sort of over the top fall um, if he were at a higher altitude that could be part of what we'd call a falling leaf it's a little bit like uh, a wing over but it's just more of a more of a turn where you're just normally as you're turning the airplane you're having to pull back quite a bit to keep the nose up because as you as the wings rotate you're losing a lot of lift in this case he's not doing that because he wants to dive back down so he's using the natural inclination of the airplane and the natural sort of energy of the turn to just pull up and then let it fall over and then he'll uh, round it out you know, low to the ground so that he can come and, and uh, buzz poor Cary Grant. Yeah, it's just a beautiful maneuver. I mean, it's it's, it's so elegant looking as he, right. as he just goes up. It's like a roller coaster just pulling it over and then and going it's, to the right. And it's not uh, – I mean, there's some maneuvers that, that may look like that from the outside, but what, you're sort of, what you would see in the cockpit – might not feel quite as elegant, but this is this is an example of one that would be a very very smooth motion and sort of just you know you imagine pulling the stick back toward you and then sort of letting it go neutral, then moving it to the right and just and then just letting that airplane just go right over the top. So you'd have a tiny bit of you know sort of lesser G, not not a full on weightlessness, but a little bit of that as you crested the top, you'd feel that in the pit of your stomach, and then as I said, it just just falling down and through and then and then rolling out coming wings level on that 90 degree turn. One of the things that, uh, that we talked about on uh, the Rocketeer minute was uh, the, the lack of visibility in the GB because you had this gigantic engine in front of you. And I know oh, on, sure. a, on the N3N, it's probably something similar because he's sitting front seat and he's, you know, he's leaning into, he's leaning into it. So really he's, he's watching his, uh, his prey, his target on the ground, as he's as he's looking off to the right, and he just kind of loses visibility as as he pulls into that into that climb and then the and then the dive. Right. So it it, it it's one of those things I'm always fascinated by on World War One uh, air to ground combat that you really can't see what you're what you're aiming at from for most of it. Yeah, you really can't. And I to be honest, I can't remember for sure whether you mentioned he was in the front seat. Well, I don't I don't know. If, I, I thought he was in the front seat at least in some of the. Some of the pictures where I've seen him, he's he's flying front seat, but it isn't uh, the normal pilot's position would be in the back seat, right? Typically speaking, typ- um, and that's that's not a universal rule, but generally speaking, for an airplane like this, you know, uses a trainer in that time frame, the World War II time frame, you'd have uh, the instructor sit in the front, and then the student who's learning to be pilot in command would be sitting in the back. Um, and where, when it's converted to a crop duster, it's very likely only has one seat. So as we'll we'll get deeper into the airplane, and I'll I'll look at the. I mean, it's more closely and things, but I, I, my semi-educated guess would be he'd probably be sitting in the back and that you'd have yeah. the chemical hopper in the front 
because that's closer to the center of gravity right between the wings. Oh, okay, yeah. So you you know, you'd want that to be the area where you had all the extra weight of the of the the chemicals, but um we we may find out uh, find out tomorrow that I was misremembering and we'll, you know, we'll well, we'll address that then. But. Yeah. Well, we've got we've got. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna hide this, but we're <laughs> we've got some an interesting uh, angle on on understanding uh, this particular aircraft. So we'll, we'll yes. know a lot more tomorrow. So. Absolutely. But uh, as so, as far as your comment about the the visibility goes, I just to address that again is that you know any any vintage airplane like this sort of a tailwheel airplane, um, certainly on the ground the visibility is really uh, is really just not very good. Um, from a rear seat, once you're in the air, once you're level, once that tail is up. Um, uh, visibility is pretty good except for really just absolutely straight ahead and slightly below you. So yeah. that's, there's, we're going to see some very, very challenging, uh, challenging flying. It's not easy to, uh, to track somebody. If, you know, if you're going to try to go and buzz them right over their heads, it, it would not be easy to do that kind of flying because, um, you, you're trying to put, uh, you know, the actor and the cameras, right in a spot the the one spot would be that would be trickiest to see so you would be leaning out of the cockpit left and right quite a bit and you know and relying on a lot of other cues to uh, to keep yourself straight and centered hmm wow well we let's let's hold all this for tomorrow because we we do have a, an interesting guest that's coming up that i think everybody <laughs> will want to hear some more more details about but we'll, we'll we'll save that for tomorrow uh for folks who do want to who, who don't want to wait and want to comment uh we are always available on the social media we are available on facebook at the man on washington's nose also on twitter at uh what is it oh it's of course it's hitchcock minute at hitchcock minute and you can find us there uh Join us at the big site, uh, HitchcockMinute.com, where you can copy down all the previous episodes and any future episodes we've got uh, are coming up there. Uh, or you can subscribe on any of the popular podcatchers ca- pod like uh, Apple Podcasts or uh, Spotify or Google Play. Uh, you can download them wherever you want, but we're here. Uh, you can get these hot and fresh every Monday through Friday if you subscribe. So please do that. Um, but we will pick up some more uh, interesting information about uh, the aircraft in question that's about to try and kill <laughs> Roger Thornhill. But join us here tomorrow on the, uh, what, what is this? Oh, yeah, this is the Hitchcock Minute. Goodbye, Mr. Thornhill, wherever you are.